Hey folks, this is To Know the Land, broadcasting for the Treaty Territories of the Mississauga the Credit on 93.3 FM at the University of Guelph. Maybe you're listening through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you listen to your podcasts. It's a show about our connections with the land base, how we learn about the land, how we defend the land, how we participate in relationship with the land. Today I wanted to talk about, well, a bunch of things, but uh, maybe a bit of a focus on pine siskins, a little songbird that comes a little bit further south once in a while or, or, or populations explode once in a while. And I want to learn more about them because I've, I've been seeing a lot of them lately. Um, I left Guelph for a week, uh, went up on the 9th to the Algonquin, Algonquin Park Wildlife Research Station. And was up there for a week with, uh, the Earth Tracks Wildlife Tracking Apprenticeship and the week-long Algonquin wolf tracking adventure or week that we do up there. Um, I got to co-lead that this year. It was a lot of fun, new responsibilities, but um, a blast. I've been going for a couple of years, a few years now, and it's it's always enjoyable. I learn a lot. And it's tons of camaraderie. You wake up early. You go out scouting at 7, up and down Highway 60, looking for tracks or sign that cut across the cut across Highway 60. And then you come back, you eat breakfast, and you go out tracking for the day. And you come back by 4, 4.35, whatever. Um, quickly make uh, dinner, and while you're doing that, you're doing a little bit of research. You eat food together, recounting a bit of the story of the day together. And then you get back to your research and socializing. And then you stay up late researching and socializing. And then go to bed and wake up the next day to do the exact same thing. So for if you're just there for the weekend, you're you're up for five days or just there for the weekend, it's two days, just there for the week five, or if you're there for the whole thing, seven seven days. Yeah, seven days of just tracking all day straight up. It's a lot of fun. And it's it's kind of tiring. I got home yesterday night and today all I've been doing is I'm still in my pajamas. I'm, I just spent the day uh, tuned into the International Wildlife Trackers Symposium. Um, it's sort of like the European Trackers Conference that happens every year. So just watching internet TV about tracking after the week of tracking and maybe I'm a little bit of a nerd. But while we were up there, there was lots of beautiful things um, following wolf trails, uh, following moose trails, seeing quite a, quite a few moose while we were there, um, marten trails, grouse trails. I was really hoping for fisher trails and didn't, didn't see one. Uh, that's okay. Lots of other sign and getting to take folks out who, who've not been out tracking before or haven't been out tracking in a long time. And are just sort of getting back to or new to a, a relationship with wildlife tracking and getting people out there. And that's, it's one of my favorite things to do, especially with a group of, of nerds that are really excited to be there and have committed to being there for a long time. Some of the rough things about being there, you know, sometimes the wildlife research station doesn't get the funding it needs and, uh, the buildings aren't as nice as they could be, but 
more so than that, I would say is, is there's a lot of incidents with wildlife. Uh, Highway 60 runs through the whole park, and Highway 60 is a corridor for animals to cross. And Highway 60 is, is a site of animal death, you know. Um, one of the days that we were out in the morning, the first day actually, I got out of the car to investigate a trail, and it was a fox trail, and I just didn't recognize it from the car. But just on the snowbank, there was a pile of feathers. And I imagine an animal had been hit by, a bird had been hit by a car, and a fox had picked it up and brought it over to the side and consumed the bird there. And I imagine this is probably a common occurrence that the foxes are ripping up and down the highway um, looking for for roadkill to consume. While we were there, I found a Red Cross bill in the middle of the road, still warm. And they were a beautiful bird to look at. They, they were, they'd been hit by a car. And on the last day, I'd found two, or uh, no, I didn't find... Uh, the co-lead, Alexis Burnett, who's been doing these trips for 25 years, he, he's the lead lead, um, he found two pine siskins in the road that had been hit by a car or multiple cars. And he brought them back to the research station so we could look at them and study them. And While we're there for the week, we sort of pick uh, focal species for the week to, to learn about and study while we're studying all the other animals. And mine was the pine siskin. And I was trying to learn about pine siskins as much as I can. And then all of a sudden on the last day, here comes Alexis and puts down two pine siskins if people wanted to look at them, get a better look. And I did. Oh, the day before, we'd been tracking them, looking at their tracks. And, and there's no information in any of the tracking books that I have about pine siskins. So I worked really hard to take down a lot of detailed notes so I could fill in the gap there and um, trying to learn more about uh, pine siskin ecology while I was there but none of the books that I have really have that much information and some of the books I have like John Eastman or or Stokes guides have detailed information about different species probably more more common species that people are likely to encounter or more the sexier, bigger species that may attract more attention. But I really wanted to learn about the pine siskin. So I guess today's show is a chance for me to dig a bit deeper and to share more of what I'm learning about from a few of the books that I have around and from some of the observations I've made of the pine siskins. And if you stay tuned, I got a really nice recording, quite a long one, but maybe I'll only share a few minutes of it at the end of the show of of pine siskins in the morning on one of those minus five but bright blue sky days up at the Wildlife Research Station in Algonquin. Um, I'm going to start with a basic... How should I start? I'm going to start with a basic write-up. This is from Birds of Ontario uh, by Lone Pine, uh, written by Andy Besner. And he spent some time in Algonquin Park. And this was published in 2000. And I actually like this book, especially working with kids, uh, pointing out the paintings of the book or paintings of the birds, and then a lot of detailed information or lore 
with other information that you'd find in a field guide. The, the pictures are large and it's really good for working with the kids. But in this book, they use an older name, Cardulus Pinus. And I think the the name now that people use are Spinus Pinus. And I'll always remember that because when I was a kid, not when I was a kid, pardon me, when I was starting out learning about uh, the scientific names of animals, I thought Spinus Pinus was pronounced Spinus Penis, and I thought that was hilarious. So it's not Spinus Penis. It is Spinus Pinus. It's still kind of funny. Um, yeah. You can spend days, weeks, or even months in pursuit of pine siskins, and you may only be met with frustration, aching feet, and a sore kinked neck. The smartest way to meet these birds is to set up a uh, finch feeder filled with black niger seed in your backyard and wait for them to appear. If the feeder is in the right location, you can expect your backyard to be visited by pine siskins just about any time of year, but particularly in winter. Tight flocks of these gregarious birds are frequently heard before they're seen. Once you recognize their characteristic rising zree calls and boisterous chatter, you can confirm the presence of these finches by simply listening. Aside from the pine siskins' occasional flashes of yellow, its wardrobe is drab and sparrow-like. But for those who get to know it, the bird's behavior reveals a gentle nature that radiates the playfulness and enthusiasm of a goldfinch. So I'm going to read this ID feature and then share some of what I noticed on the, the two dead pine siskins that I got to investigate. Heavily streaked underparts, yellow highlights at the base of the tail feathers, and in the wings, usually see, easily seen in flight. Dull wing bars, darker, heavier streaked upper parts, slightly forked tail, indistinct facial pattern. And the immature is similar to the adult, but the overall yellow tint fades through summer. They're about 11 to 13 centimeters long. The thing that really caught my eye when we were tracking them, um, the first day I saw them, uh, or I saw the tracks, was there were these bird tracks that were pretty obvious. They just came out of nowhere, hopped and skipped a little bit, and then took off. So it was just like this short span of maybe five to seven tracks. But on the end where the bird landed, you could see the imprint of the Siskin's forked tail. And I had just been looking at the Siskin's forked, forked tail in a tree branch the day before. And... That really caught my eye, and then to see it imprinted in the snow was also pretty special. And when I measured the track, oh, maybe I'll get into all the tracks that I have details for right now. So the tracks measured from about 2.7 to 3.1 centimeters long, or that's 1 and 1 16th to 1 and 1 eighth long, um, by about 0.8 to 1.3 centimeters wide, 5 sixteenths to about half an inch wide. Uh, skips and hops. So they move by skipping, which is kind of like a hop, but the feet are sort of offset and they sort of move in an offset way. It's, you can imagine of a, of a rhythm, maybe like, like a doot, 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 doot. Um, and yeah, the feet are a little bit offset, or hops where the feet are landing together at the same time in the same sort of in line with each other. And their stride lengths were about 4 to 15 
and a quarter centimeters or about one and nine sixteenths to a six inch stride length. So that's a pretty wide variation. So maybe stride length wouldn't be the way to detail the bird so well. But the, the, the trail width was about 2.5 to 3.7 centimeters or about an inch to one and seven sixteenths. And what else did we notice? In, in the tracks, you could really see that toe three it was a little bit longer. And if you imagine a bird track, a common bird track, you might imagine sort of like an inverted peace sign. And the long branch on a peace sign that would normally go up, but if it's upside down, it would go down. Opposite that, you have like these three, maybe a pitchfork sticking up. And the middle one, that would be toe three. You always count from the bottom first, the helix, toe one. And then you count from the inside of the foot. So one, two, three. It's hard to imagine, but if you look at your own hand, say your right hand, and you, you spread out your fingers, toe one would be facing backwards. Uh, your pointer finger would be toe two. Your middle finger, point or toe three. And your fourth finger, or I've heard it called the medicine finger or the ring finger, would be toe four. And their toe three, your middle finger, um, and their middle finger, too, uh, would be longer than the other toes. It seems that way. And that toe f three, that middle finger, is a bit closer to toe four than it is to toe two. And you can see this a little bit in the tracks. It takes some careful observation, some good, fine snow that's not too deep, but you can see it in the tracks. When I measured uh, the feet on the dead birds, both of their right feet, I only measured their right feet, were both about 2.7 uh, centimeters long or 27 millimeters or one and one sixteenth inches long. That would be, they must have been smaller than the other birds that we'd seen. And the claw on toe three, that middle finger, and toe one, the helix, uh, analogous maybe to our thumb, but it points out just directly back on on a classic bird track. Um, those claws, those talons that they had are very long, suitable for gripping the branches of, of the trees that they spend their time in. Yeah, I'm just thinking about them now. Thinking, of, <laughs> thinking about holding these dead birds in my hand and all the learning that I got. And I'm just so grateful that I got the chance to get to know these birds and I'm getting to know them more. And I just got a, a wave of feeling for that. So I just want to say that right away, that I'm so grateful to spend time with animals, dead animals we learn so much from. We can hold them in our hands. We can explore their, their bodies. We can hold out their wings and measure their wing length or look at the beauty of their, of their feathers and just see how amazing these creatures are. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're about 11 to 13 centimeters. This is back to the Birds of Ontario book. Their status is uncommon to common, eruptive and erratic year-round resident. Uncommon to common migrant and visitor from October to May. I'm going to read a small essay later on eruption and eruptive, what that means. But Their breeding habitat is coniferous and mixed forests and urban and rural ornamental and shade trees. In winter, it's coniferous and mixed forests, 
forest edges, meadows, roadsides, agricultural fields, and backyards with feeders. Um, nesting, usually loosely colonial, typically at mid-height on an outer branch of a conifer. The female builds a loose cup of twigs, grass, rootlets, and lines it with feathers, hairs, rootlets, and uh, plant fibers, fine plant fibers. Female incubates three to five pale blue eggs with dark dots for about 13 days. Their feeding habit is that they, they glean from the ground and vegetation for seeds, especially thistle seeds, buds, and some insects. They're attracted to road salts. Mineral licks and ashes regularly visits feeding stations. This attraction to road salts is what I think killed those two that uh, Alexis found in Algonquin. Yeah. You know, they put salt on the road that attracts the animals. The voice is a variable, bubbly mix of squeaky, metallic, raspy notes, sometimes resembling a jerky laugh. Call is a buzzy, rising zree, zree. And I've described that to people before as like a, maybe a lightsaber. You know, like that constant buzz because the lightsaber is supposedly like destroying molecules or atoms as it just sits there. It's a it's got that rising sound, like the lightsaber doesn't, but the birds do. They have that zreet, zreet, or zreet, zreet kind of sound. Um, and then that bubbly raspy, well, you know what? I'm just going to play the audio here from All About Birds. So that's that's the sound of the pine siskin. And I'll play more. I'll play more later, a longer track. Uh, similar species are the common red pole, the hoary red pole, um, that have a red forecrown, and they lack the yellow in the wings and the tails. The purple finch and house finch, I don't think they're that similar. But the females have a thicker bill and no yellow in the wings or tails. Uh, some of the sparrows, and all lack the yellow in the wings and tails. Um, yeah. So that's, that's from Birds of Ontario by Lone Pine, Andy Besner, uh, put out in 2000. And again, that's a great book for reading with kids. Uh, I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, it's a good one. I wanted to read a little bit more about the nesting habits because I'm trying to learn about nests right now in preparation for spring wildlife track and sign evaluations. And, uh, yeah, so this is from Peterson Field Guide to North American Bird Nests with Casey McFarland, Matthew Mangello, and David Moskovich, all good trackers in their own right. And I interviewed Casey McFarland when this book came out, and it's been a very valuable resource ever since. It sort of builds upon the work that Hal Harrison did when he put out uh, Eastern Bird Nests and the Western Bird Nest series from Peterson Field Guides. This is like the updated version of the that book. 
just trying to find the publisher information page so I can read it to y'all and let you know some more details. Oh, I can't find it. Oh, well. Okay. Spinous pinus, pine siskin. Habitat. Primarily coniferous forests, also parks, other suburban landscapes. The location and structure of the nest is in a tree or shrub, typically a conifer midway up the trunk, toward the end of a branch in a spot well concealed by foliage. The average nest height is about 6 meters, but can be up to, or low as 1 and up to 15 meters. The nest is thick-walled, well-insulated cups, sometimes quite deep, often only loosely attached to a branch, therefore vulnerable to wind. It's built with an exterior of twigs, rootlets, leaves, and moss, and an interior of fur, feathers, grass, bark strips, and other fine plant material. The nest is relatively large for the size of a bird. The outside diameter is about 9 centimeters, or 6 to 15 total. Height, about 4.5 centimeters, 3 to 6 centimeters. It's kind of squat. Inside diameter, 5 centimeters. Cup depth, uh, about 2.5 centimeters. Eggs three to four, pale blue with markings toward the larger end, short oval, 17 by 20, 17 by 12 millimeters. Um, the incubation period is about 13 days, 13 days, all done by the female. Um, the nestling period is about 15 days, and it's fed by both the male and female, I think. That's, I think that's what I'm reading here. Uh, behavior is seasonally monogamous, often in loose colonies with neighboring nests being a few trees away from each other. During the brooding, the female stays on eggs while the males bring food. Great. Again, yeah, that's Peterson Field Guide to North American Bird Nest. Casey McFarland, Matthew Mangello, David Moskowitz, or Moskowitz. Um, yeah, great book. And then I said that I was going to read a section or a small essay on eruption and what that means. And eruptions, well, I'll get into that. This is from the Birders Handbook, a field guide to the natural history of North American birds by Paul Ehrlich, David Dobkin, and Daryl Y. And some people know this is the big yellow book because it's, it's big, it's yellow, published in 1988. It was a companion to go with some field guides, but to offer a lot more detail and it has information on the birds, information I've already covered from th these two other field guides, um, but also they offer short essays covering different biological or natural history interests about some of the birds or all the birds that they're covering. And I really like these and you can learn a lot from them. And they do have one on eruptions, which I think is really cool. So. I'm going to read this and then maybe just get to some sounds of the birds because that's one of the big ways that we interact with them. Southward autumn invasions, eruptions, by normally northern seed-eating birds are dramatic but apparently irregular events. Eruptive North American species include the bohemian and cedar waxwings, pine and evening grosbeaks, black-capped and boreal chickadees, red-breasted nuthatch, pine siskin, common and hoary redpoles, purple finch, clarks, nutcracker. The species perhaps best associated with these occurrence, however, are the red and white-winged crossbills. 
Three major questions are raised by these eruptive migrations. What causes them? Are they really irregular events? Are they synchronized among populations within a species or between species? Ornithologists generally concur that eruptions are triggered by food shortages, such as a failure of the coniferous cone crops over a large geographic area. Analysis by ornithologist Carl Bach and uh, Larry Lepthian of many years of Audubon Christmas counts indicate that synchronization of seed crop failures in some high-latitude tree species leads to southward eruptions of species normally dependent on these seeds. Years of good crops, which presumably result in higher population densities of seed-eating birds, are often followed by years of, with poor crops. Thus, a year of crop failure that followed one of abundant seeds, bird population may be normal or larger than normal. This adds pressure on scarce food resources and serves as additional impetus to migrate. It appears then that the seed crop size is the primary cause of eruptions and that large population sizes may sometimes be contributing factor. However, because many other factors, such as insect abundance during the breeding season, can affect population density in a given year, not all species will be affected synchronously by a seed crop failure that leads to eruptions of some species. Diurnal and nocturnal raptors that feed on small mammals with cyclic population fluctuations constitute another group of eruptive species. North American species, uh, rough-legged hawk, the northern goshawk, uh, snowy and great-horned, short-eared owls are known to erupt periodically. Two main cycles are recognized in boreal small mammals, a four-year cycle among tundra and grassland rodents, and a 10-year cycle that characterizes snowshoe hares. Why populations of these species explode and crash with these approximate periodicities, periodicities um, is not clear, but when they crash, the predictable result is a southward eruption of many of their avian predators, as in northern seed-eating birds. Problems of food scarcity caused by the crash are often exacerbated by the dense, rap dense raptor populations that resulted from preceding years of relatively high prey abundance. Invasions of rough-legged hawks and snowy owls often occur in the same year, with about four-year periodicity because of these species feed largely on rodents. In contrast, invasions by northern goshawks which feed to a great extent on hares and rabbits, occur roughly in 10-year cycles. Again, that's from the Birders' Handbook by Paul Ehrlich, David Dobkin, Daryl Y. from Simon & Schuster, published in 1988. There's so much to think about when it comes to these pine siskins and what they're doing in these eruptions. And... I feel like a week in Algonquin and then coming back and studying these birds is never enough. It's never enough. And I mean, it's not just the pine skin. Like that book on eruption, like that mentioned the eruptions just named, we also found the Red Cross Bill. And you probably know them or have heard of them before because their bills are crossed and they can pry open the cone seeds and use their tongue or pry open the cone scales and use their tongue to reach in and grab the seeds. And I guess they hang out a lot with the pine siskins. 
I, I want to know more about eruptions. I, I feel like it's tied to mast, but is it tied to previous year mass or is it tied to, um, well, it must be tied to previous year masts because there needs to be a large enough population. But I also think it's tied to the current year mast. So this year seemed to have a lot of pine cones or, or a lot of the, the, the mast bearing trees. I kept calling this year year of plenty because the walnuts were taking it, were, were popping off, the apples were popping off, uh, cherries seemed to be, well, I'm not going to name cherries. I don't know how a lot of the cherries were doing. Maybe I, I won't say cherries. Um, but a lot of, like the oaks and, and the acorns that were plentiful this year. And it seemed like when I look at the top of the pine trees, especially the white pines, uh, there's a ton of cones. and you know they're all they're all developing the previous year but the seeds were ready now ready for consumption now maybe this means i got to learn more about how how these plants how these mass cycles work and i've often wondered that i've often been curious about how mass cycles work i once asked uh martin tamlin who was on the show and he had no idea and he he said you know i i don't know might as well ask uh uh, Mark Ross, who's who's a farmer friend, and then Mark Ross is like, uh, you know, he he's he's a into anthroposophical. I think that's what he call it. Rudolf Steiner ideas uh, of farming and how seasonal uh, food, crop production works, and he he or someone else maybe he'd referred to had suggested even looking at planets and other planets and how they affect eruptive years. And I, I don't, I, I, maybe I'm misinterpreting this, but I don't think planets affect us or affect the Earth and how things grow here. But I think they could be on uh, similar patterns. You know, like maybe this planet is here at this specific cycle that lines up with eruptive cycles here on Earth. But I don't know... There, there's theories, you know, like there's there's theories about how the plants will self-organize in a way um, that they will produce a lot of mast one year and tons of animals will go out and hide a bunch of the, like let's say a squirrel and an acorn. The oak tree produces a whole bunch of acorns. The squirrel hides as many as they can. Um but there's a low squirrel population. So there's so many acorns to the amount of squirrels. So the squirrel hides as many as they can. The next year, or in the spring, that squirrel has eaten so many acorns. They're doing well. It's time to mate. Let's go for it. We have a lot of food. We can raise our young. They raise their young. The following year, no acorns or very, very few. Thus, uh, the population dwindles. And then the next year, no acorns. The population dwindles some more. The squirrel population gets fewer and fewer, smaller and smaller. And then, and then the following year, there's a huge acorn crop. And there's only so few squirrels that they have to hide all these acorns and, and try and stash them away. And in this process, they're, they're eating a ton, 
but while they're hiding some away, they won't be able to retrieve all of them, thus enabling these acorns to germinate and grow if they've been, you know, sort of buried in the ground in an acorn cache some or in a squirrel's cache somewhere. I'm very I'm simplifying this um, just to offer ideas and that y'all can go out and look it up and learn more. But this is this is this seems to make sense to me as a possibility of why or how these eruptions work. But it seems that it's across a species sometimes, you know, like all the oaks are having a good mast here, or all the black walnuts are having a good mast here. And I'm curious as to how that's organized. Is it just my own assumption of this? Is it, is it just the trees that I experience or get to know? And maybe a bunch of them, I'm just not noticing when the other ones are, are popping off and dropping lots of acorns. Or is it that it seems to be in unison, like these trees are all timed together somehow? I don't know. I don't know how, how these eruption years work, and I don't know how the mast years work, but learning more about these eruptions, learning more about these pine siskins, gets me on a path towards that. starts to help me build the groundwork to learn more about that. If any of you know how this works better than I do, please forward me any papers, any suggestions, any articles. You can always hit me up at to know the land at gmail.com, on Instagram, at to know the land. The website's www.tonowtheland.com. I want to learn more about this, and I hope that the I hope that today's show teaches you something about the pine siskins and maybe brings in some curiosity with these questions about eruptions and mass years as well. I hope I can learn more about the pine siskins too. If you know any good resources on pine siskins in particular, let me know. It's great to think about them for a week solid, you know, like every day, this is your focal species. I had to think about like, how, what's their gestation rate? How do they move? What do they like to eat? Where do they live? Um, it's, it's just really good to go a little bit deeper in a very simple, fun, playful way at the Algonquin Wildlife Research Station. If you have any feed, feedback, critique, or ideas, yeah, hit me up, email me. If you want to support the show, you can always donate uh, to knowtheland.com forward slash donate. Thanks again to everybody who supports the show. I appreciate that a lot. And now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you all with the sounds of the birds, this was Friday morning, um, Friday, uh, February 16th, in the morning at the Wildlife Research Station with the my, my recorder sort of facing south and uh, right at the big garage with the big red doors, if, if any of you have been there. And yeah, it's just nice to be sort of a wash in in the in the song of the birds and again you know if this this show is about learning about the land and how to be in better relationship how to be a better uh guest at the party or or participant in the party that is the multiplicity of and diversity of life 
then listening, learning how to listen in a good way is always a good thing. So I hope you enjoy listening to the birds and I hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Take care.